but we're getting into the New Testament, and uh, we're going to do kind of like what we did on the first night of the Old Testament, where we just went over some of the vocabulary. So it's probably going to be a little bit shorter tonight, probably not as heavy, and it's going to be a little bit of a building week into the next couple weeks, where we'll really flesh out um, some of the things we see in the New Testament about repentance. Um, before we get too far into it, this week as I've been thinking through where we've been so far with repentance um, and what we saw primarily in the Old Testament uh, with the doctrine of repentance is this idea of turning towards God or conversion, um, if it's easier to think of it that way, is expressed in a bunch of different ways. And so in the Old Testament, one of the main ways we saw that was turn to God with all your heart, right? Um, in fact, if we were going to summarize the message of repentance in the whole Old Testament, that's probably how we would describe it. It was over and over. We were just commanded, the nation of Israel was commanded to turn to God with all their hearts. Um, and along with that was turning away from idols, um, turning, sorry, from idols. And so, same idea expressed as turning towards God, turning away from idols, um, removing iniquity, and then we even fleshed out things like we looked at the different contexts where we were called to walk in obedience as a result of that inward change or that inward transformation of the heart towards God, right? Um, so we saw passages where people were commanded to walk in obedience. And um, we looked at that passage even in Isaiah where we were commanded, or the nation of Israel was commanded that in turning to God, they would trust in God. Um, and that was when they were tempted to turn towards Egypt and trust in Egypt for their salvation from foreign nations, right? And Isaiah was telling them, no, don't turn to Egypt, turn to God and trust in Him. That's where your rest will be. Just trust in God. And so all these things come with this idea of turning to God or being converted towards God. It's, it's not just, it, as you move through Scripture, there's just a lot of different expressions of it. There's a lot of things that go along with it that you can't just get one bit of it and lose other parts of it. Like you can't just have the trust in God without also walking in obedience. Those always go together. So when you trust in God, you're going to walk in obedience too. And so all these things go together. And the reason I'm pointing that out, because as we're moving into the New Testament, um, it kind of focuses in a little bit and um, gets a little bit more... Uh, I guess, nuanced in its focus on the mind. And so where we would see in the Old Testament the total turning to God with the heart, the New Testament's going to express the same idea with a change of mind. Um, so same central idea of turning to God, but it's just expressed with a change of mind. Um, and I'm just going to kind of lay out where we're going to be tonight, and there's probably going to be some repetition but that's okay. I mean, it's, it's going to be helpful to help, help us grasp it. But the change of mind we're going to see as we walk through it can be a change of mind 
uh, excuse my handwriting, about God or a change of mind about sin. These are the two things that we see most when there's a subject, when there's, there's a, something that you change your mind in respect towards in the New Testament. It's either in respect towards God you're changing your mind or in respect towards sin you're changing your mind. You're changing your mind about one of those two things. And when you change your mind about God, the result is faith. And when you change your mind about sin, the result is obedience. And so that's, I mean, that's where we're going to be tonight. I just lay that out there because it's easier for me to think through those things kind of graphically. Um, but we're just going to walk through these and look at the vocabulary of it and then a couple passages where it's used. Um, but just keep those ideas of faith and obedience in mind. Um, but these are the words in the New Testament that are used to describe uh, repentance. And there's five words, but there's really just two when you boil it down. Um, so don't get freaked out thinking you're, you're going to have a vocabulary test on this. It's really just this, this metanoia and metanoeo are just one's a verb, one's a noun, but they're effectively the same word. And then this one here, strepho, that's the word for turning, um, very similar to our Old Testament word of turning. And the only difference with these two down here are different prepositional prefixes they put on the beginning. So you see that a ton in Greek. They'll have your root word, which in this case is strepho, it's turning, and then you just put a little prefix on there. So it's epistrepho, which is more of a turning towards, and then you've got apostrepho, which is more a turning from, and that's just the difference based on the preposition that they tack onto the front of it. And so really you've just got this idea of repentance, metanoeo, metanoia, and then strepho. So just, just really two words, just divided up into a couple more um, forms and whatnot. So this first word is definitely the most significant, and it, uh, it, it's funny. When we're in the Old Testament, our first word, um, shuv, it occurred like over a thousand times. And even though this is the most um, significant word in the New Testament, I think it occurs like 34 times. So it's just funny when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament how, how much the frequency goes down with stuff like that. But you can see with Greek it's easy or it's helpful to understand words when you break them apart into um, their, their different parts that build them up. And so like I said, a lot of times you get a, a, a preposition that's a prefix on them. So this word, um, metanoia, repentance, it's a compound word. And it's built up of two Greek words. Um, the first of those is, is meta, which is a preposition. And most of the time that preposition means uh, with. But in the context of repentance, and when it's tacked on to this word, most scholars agree that it actually takes the meaning of after in terms of like chronological, like something happens after something else, right? Um, so meta, think after, okay? And then nous is the New Testament word for mind. And what's interesting about that is, remember in the Old Testament, what was the object of repentance most of the time? The heart, yeah. 
The object of repentance most of the time in the Old Testament was the heart. When we get to the New Testament, it transitions just a little bit, and it's going to focus a lot more on the mind. Uh, but if you remember, we talked about the heart really kind of encapsulated the idea of the mind too. It carried both the idea of the heart and the mind as we understand it. Um, but the New Testament's really going to hone in on the mind as the intellectual center, right? And so I put up a couple quotes here. The mind and the understanding of this context is the inner direction um, of thought and will and the orientation of moral consciousness. It is an intellectual organ, the faculty of knowledge. So it's the thing that you know stuff with. It's the thing that you make moral decisions with. Um, so it's, it's your thought process, all those things. It's just your mind. And so whereas Old Testament was focused more on the heart as being like your center of, of knowledge and emotion and affection, the New Testament focuses more on just your center of knowledge and knowing things. Um, so keep that in mind. Noose is the inner judicial court that is able to distinguish good and evil. Um, so it's your moral compass, your moral consciousness, I guess you would say. Um, and its original meaning when you put those two words together, meta, noeo, meta plus noose, um, basically meant like subsequent knowledge so like something you, you understand after, it's after understanding. Um, and then, you know, you can see based on that idea, it took on the meaning of change of mind. And that's, that's what it means when you boil it down. It just means change of mind. Um, it's important to remember, like, even when you're breaking words into their principal parts, sometimes the meaning is a little bit different than the sum of the parts. So you think of like awesome and awful in English. Awesome is something that produces some awe. Awe is the prefix there. But then you think about awful, and originally that word meant something that bring, gives you lots of awe. It fills you with awe, right? You're full of awe. But now we use it and it means something terrible. And so sometimes words morph and change meaning a little bit. And so it's not surprising that this originally meant subsequent knowledge and came to mean a change of mind based on a new understanding. So after you get a new understanding, a new knowledge, a new view of something, you change your mind or your view on it. And so that essentially is what metanoeo is. I'm changing my mind based on a new view or new knowledge that's, that's, that's new to me. So it's after this knowledge. Um, so we see this throughout the New Testament. Um, here's, here's one passage. Uh, I'm probably going to call on people a lot more to read tonight so that my voice doesn't go out. Um, Tyler, do you mind reading that verse for us? Right, so this is where Peter is confronting Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, where Simon is witnessing um, some of the miraculous acts that are going on through the apostles, and he's wanting to capitalize on them more or less for his own gain. And Peter calls him to repent of the wickedness. And so as I was reading through this, it's interesting. Some people will say what Peter is calling him to do 
is to feel sorry for his wickedness, right? And now that we're, we understand what, what metanoeo means, that doesn't really fit, right? We, we don't say um, repent, therefore. We wouldn't say, Simon, be sorry, therefore. That doesn't fit with our meaning of change your mind, right? Feel sorry about the wickedness. And that's not to say that sorrow of wickedness is bad. It's good. But that's not what Peter's getting at here. And he's not calling Simon the magician to just do penance over his wickedness either. He's not just saying, go do these actions, go do this work, just quick, cut it out. Right? That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is repent, change your mind in relation to this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So he's calling him to change his mind about his sin. And that's where repentance starts. It always starts in the mind. So don't think of repentance as strictly sorrow over sin. That's not the picture of New Testament repentance. And don't think of repentance as just a penitential action. Like I'm going to stop this sin um, of my own work and depend on that stopping of this sin to save me. Well, that's not the picture of repentance either. The picture of repentance is change your mind about it. And the reason that that's the call to repentance is because when you change your mind about the sin, you're going to stop sinning, right? This is a really silly example, but I was thinking of, you know, if, I, if somebody convinced me that I was going to win the lottery, and I was thoroughly convinced and fully believed that I was going to win the lottery if I bought a lottery ticket, what would I go do? I would go buy a lottery ticket because like, I'm convinced that I'm going to win. And so if you're, what you're convinced of and what you believe about a thing is going to influence your actions about that thing. And it's the same with repentance. If you change your, if you change your mind concerning sin, you're going to change your action about it too. You can't ever divorce those two. You can't ever just say, you know, I'll change my mind about it. I'll be sorry about it or something like that but then there's no change that's external. There's no change of action, right? So it's a call to change your mind, but it's always going to play out in a change of action. That's just how it works. Um, so that passage we looked at, it was a, a, a call to repent towards a specific instance of wickedness. Um, but in other times in the New Testament, it's a little bit different. Um, and that's what we're going to see in this passage. So, Dad, can you read that all right? Can you read that one for us? Yeah, <laughs> and when they, the Ephesian elders, came to him, Paul, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. 19, oh, sorry, verse 19. <laughs> the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so in this passage versus the last passage, what are we called to change our minds in relation to? God, right. So in the last passage, we were called to repent of that, or not we, I'm sorry. Simon was called to repent of that specific instance of wickedness. In this one, we're called to repent toward God, right? And so the idea is this change of mind 
can happen towards sin, and the result of that is a change of action, change of pattern, sin pattern, so you're going to walk in obedience. That's the result of it. But when we're changed in our mind concerning God, the result is what? It's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you change your mind about sin, what that looks like is what we've been doing on Wednesday night where we go through and we go from our natural state of thinking of sin as something casual that God's going to sweep under the rug that really isn't a big deal to actually understanding the biblical picture of sin as cosmic treason before God and having that mental intellectual understanding of sin will prevent us from walking in sin casually or loving sin and the result is obedience towards God. When we change our minds towards God, we go from thinking of God as whatever the natural state of thinking of God is, you know, thinking of Him as um, either non-existent or denying His existence or having a false perception of God, whatever that might look like, to, to understanding the truth of God and the holiness of God and the character of God and turning towards that accurate picture of God, right? So repentance towards God results in dependence of God. It's, it's faith in God. And so the whole idea of repentance involves turning away from sin turning towards God, all that is all part of that same conversion process where you're, you're, and it starts and focuses in with the mind, right? It's understanding the reality of sin and it's understanding the character of God and the truths of God and it's depending fully on those things. So, you know, it's not just, if you misunderstand repentance and what it is, you might be inclined to say, well, it's a call to feel sorry toward, towards God. Well, I mean, that's good, but that's not really the biblical picture of it. Or you might say, well, it's a call to do penance towards God. Like, just do your part, put in this work, do this thing, and that's what this penitential process or repentance is all about. And again, that's just not the biblical picture. The picture of repentance is a change of mind that's so deep, it's going to manifest itself in your actions and in the thing that you depend on, which when it's towards God is going to be faith in God. That's, that's You're going to depend on God fully. Um, <clears throat> so, just going back over those things. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So Paul is calling out people who um, he, he thought might not have repented over specific sins, specific instances of sin. So again, we get the idea of repentance being in relation towards sin, and Paul sees that they haven't repented um, or, or fears that they haven't repented um, because they're still practicing these sins, right? And so the indication of whether or not they've repented is based on whether or not they're still practicing these sins. That's how Paul knows whether or not this internal transformation of their mind has happened. Um, so when we're called um, to change our minds about sin, the result is obedience. On the flip side, this is the verse that we looked at a minute ago, 
when we are called to repent towards God, the result is faith. And so you get both sides there. Repentance in relation to sin, when we change our mind about sin, results in obedience. When we change our mind about God, it results in faith and dependence on God. Um, sometimes, though, in the New Testament, you get commands to repent that are open-ended, and they aren't necessarily in relation to anything, right? They're just a command to repent. Um, for example, this is um, the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew 4:17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. He, uh, you see that a lot in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, the urgency of repentance, right? He's, there's an emphasis on the urgency because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, but without a specific um, instance or without a specific situation that this call to repent is going into, you know, it, it's not like Paul's writing a letter and he's calling... Um, people to repent over a certain situation that we know of. This is just a very broad command to repent. So what's going on here? Like what, what's he calling us to change our minds about here? I, I think it's both. I think when it's just this open-ended call to repent, it's a call to completely change your mind towards God and completely change your mind towards sin in such a way that you're completely converted towards God from old uh, from death to new life, right? So it's, it's a call to completely change in such a way that all your actions are also going to change. Um, and it's all based on, in this context, the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, but it's the new knowledge of Christ's ministry coming and, and the kingdom of heaven drawing near. So um, you see that a lot in the New Testament too, just the open-ended call to repent. Um, and so it's not always in relation to sin or to God. Um, but I think the, the application is the same. It's just be converted, be turned towards God um, in a radical change of the mind and your understanding or your knowledge of God and of sin and those, those essential gospel truths that we talk about so often. And so, I mean, these... This is why it's so important that we do things like we did on Wednesday nights where we're going through the doctrine of sin to such detail because if we don't understand sin and if we don't understand and comprehend and mentally know the reality of sin and how awful it is before God, it's gonna, we aren't going to be able to repent towards sin. Like that's, that's where that occurs is understanding. And as believers who have repented, that's how we continue on in repentance is just growing into deeper and deeper knowledge of sin and deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holiness and God's character and depending more and more on God in every situation. Um, and so that's, that's why these doctrines of faith and repentance are they're just things that continue to grow and develop in lives of believers as we continue to deepen our understanding of I mean, just the very most basic things of the gospel, like man's sinfulness and God's holiness. Um, so that's, that's why those things are so critical for us to just continue to study and continue to grow in. Um, these two passages, uh, again in Mark, I think this is John the Baptist uh, speaking. Or no, it's not, I'm sorry. 
I guess this would be Christ. Um, might be John. So it says, in uh, saying to Thomas of Field, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so again, you see the idea of repentance and belief going hand in hand. You really can't separate those two things ever in Scripture. Um, and this one is super interesting. Um, the second example in Luke. Um, this, this whole passage kind of flip-flops between uh, comparing or relating repentance to hearing and to um, being convinced of something. So again, you just get these words that are like, mental understanding type words like being convinced of the truth of something or being or hearing something um, being compared to repentance so uh, Rob can you read that back there Luke 16 27 this is the tail end of the rich man and Lazarus parable that um, Jesus gives so and he said, uh, says and I beg you father to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, we get this picture of the rich man in heaven having this conversation with Abraham um, begging to go back so he can just tell his, his, his brothers like, hey, this thing's for real. You need to repent. You need to turn towards God or else you're going to spend eternity under the wrath of God like I'm experiencing, right? So Christ is giving this parable and this rich man is begging Abraham to just let him go back and if I could just have five minutes with him and just tell them, then surely they would repent. Surely they would listen to me. I mean, listen, I'm coming back from the dead. Like, what, what more could they need if they just saw this and saw the testimony of someone who's been there and experienced it? Surely then they would repent, right? And I used to think that way too. Like, if, if God would just do some kind of miracle and it would be publicly visible, something that was caught on TV or something, everybody saw it, then like everybody would just immediately turn to God and have faith in Him and believe in Him. But nothing could be further from the truth, right? I mean, look at, look at how Abraham responds. He's, he says they have the Scriptures. The interesting, the way he says this is like, man, why would you think that they would believe something so small as somebody being raised from the dead when they hold the very words of God in their hands? He's saying that the Word of God is more convincing than somebody being raised from the dead, right? That's a, that's a deeper testimony to and a deeper call to repentance than somebody coming up from the dead. And so he's saying they have the words of God and they aren't listening to those things. That's more of a miracle than somebody coming from the dead, that we hold the very words of God in our hands. Um, and so he's saying they, they, they won't, won't repent because they see some sign. Um, and, I mean, same thing. If you have your Bibles, turn to um, Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 21. 
Brother Joey, you mind reading that? Maybe a couple verses there. Mm -hmm. What do you, Chorazin, what do you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Yeah, so not only did the Jews have the very words of God in their hands and still not repent, they did witness miracles. They witnessed God in the flesh performing signs right in front of their faces and yet that was not enough to cause them to turn to God in repentance, right? So the natural state of the heart is so dead that it can experience the very, very, it can experience God in the flesh performing miracles. It can hold the words of God in its hands and it can still reject God and fail to repent. Um, and so, I mean, it's just a miracle that God would ever call us unto life and call us unto repentance and give us the gift of repentance because there's I mean if if we were to see Christ face to face and witness his miracles it still wouldn't be enough to convince us and lead us into repentance were it not for the spirit of God opening our minds and allowing us to grasp these truths um, and so that's that's just an example of that you know the the picture is you have the scriptures, you have these things. If those things aren't enough to convince you or cause you to repent, um, then nothing is. And it's true, nothing is outside the grace of God, causing us to repent and be convinced of the truths of scripture. So I put this up here. As we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's some similarities and a couple little differences um, in expressions of repentance. Both of them involve an interchange. We talked a lot about the change of the heart, um, and now we're talking a lot more about the change of the mind. And, you know, both of those are internal changes that lead to external changes, specifically change of actions. Um, both describe either a turn away from something, especially sin, or in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's idolatry as the specific sin that they're turning away from. Um, and towards something else, especially God, or walking in the way of God. And then um, turning to God in repentance is a requirement for salvation. So we saw that all over in the Old Testament, right? They were called to repent so that God would relent of various disasters, or um, he, would, he would not exile them from the land, things like that. A lot of times it was physical salvation in the Old Testament. Uh, but in the New Testament, it's spiritual salvation, as we're going to be looking at in the next couple weeks. Um, the object of repentance was the heart in the Old Testament, and that included the idea of the mind, but just the expression of it was the heart, whereas in the New Testament, it focuses more on the mind. Old Testament, um, did a, it, it balanced um, the effective things, so like um, your emotions, things you love, those types of things, and it balanced that with behavioral changes and mental changes, cognitive changes. 
So all those things were balanced in the Old Testament, whereas in the New Testament, it really emphasizes the cognitive change of mind and then how that's played out in moral behavior. That's, that's where the New Testament places heavily its emphasis. Um, and then another interesting thing is, you know, Old Testament talk about all the, these external signs um, like weeping and ashes and sackcloth, tearing of the clothes, um, fasting, communal confession, all these kind of things we saw in Old Testament expressions of repentance. We don't really see that much at all in the New Testament. Um, of course, I mean, we see examples of fasting and stuff. It's just not really embedded in this, the, the, the repentance passages necessarily. Um, so why do y'all think that is? Just out of kind of discussion question. Anybody got any, any takes on that? Yeah, absolutely. By the time you get to the New Testament, and I, I kind of came to the same conclusion, by the time you get to the New Testament, those external signs of repentance hadn't become signs of repentance. They had become the replacement of repentance. People, the Pharisees and the scribes said, I'm not changing my heart. Why change my heart when I can just change my clothes into sackcloth or tear my clothes or sprinkle some ashes on myself? And so it became an external only thing, judge these external actions, and they never change the heart. And so I think that's why the New Testament just really focuses in on do these, change your mind, change your actions, like change your behavior before God as a result of the, your mind being changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, so it, it really emphasizes those things because I think it was just so abused by that point, um, by m misunderstanding. Um, what it meant to turn to God. It's just so abused by the scribes and Pharisees by that point. First thing that came to mind, go back. Huh? If you read from the Old Testament, New Testament, Ezekiel 36. Yeah. Because that's the gospel. Yeah. Right? The promise so, of the new heart. The, you know, he's written the law in our hearts and we can't mm. obey. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting too, just understanding like what all is meant by the heart in the Old Testament when it's talking about the law of God being written on your heart. Like that's, you know, you're, you're called to obey the law because of that. Like it's, it's not just, you know, some... I mean, it, it's your moral conscience, but like you know it, so it's it's clearly visible, I guess. But anyways, yeah. So it's it's interesting moving from the Old Testament and New Testament. There are some similarities, but also some really interesting changes. So, um, so one thing we talked about a lot in the Old Testament repentance was just like emotion, brokenness over sin, contrition, sorrow, those sort of things. Um, which caused me to question, like, okay, did that just go away by the time you get to the New Testament? Because you don't see it quite as much, especially in these passages about repentance, right? 
And so it's definitely not emphasized as much as it is in the Old Testament. And I think a lot of that's probably because in the New Testament, you just have a lot more um, commands and exhortations to repent. And the times you see people weeping a lot and stuff are the examples and the stories of people repenting. Um, so it's not to say that it doesn't play a part. It's just not the focus. Um, but you see in this passage, it's still there. Um, Paul is writing his second letter to the Corinthians. Um, and he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And the way this passage is translated in different translations is just really confusing and it varies a lot. Um, but I put on the bottom here just kind of what the Greek looks like if you translate it really literally. And I don't know if it's super helpful or not, but it's for the from God's sorrow. So it's the sorrow that comes down from God, um, works or results. Um, repentance to salvation, and it's a repentance that is not to be regretted. But um, the of the world's sorrow, the sorrow that comes from the world, works or produces death. And it's interesting, this word, ergazitai, er, 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 um, if you isolate that front root there, ergon, what, what's that for, Greek students? Work, Work. Right. So it's, it's these, this sorrow, a godly sense of sorrow, produces or works something in you, repentance, that leads to salvation. It's towards salvation, right? Um, but worldly, or of the world's sorrow, that kind of sorrow, works or produces death. Um, so you get this idea, what Paul's talking about, I believe, is that, there's a godly sense of brokenness over sin that will lead you to repentance in God. It works itself out that way. And the way that you know whether or not that that repentance has worked out is in your works, in your actions. There's a bit of wordplay there. And um, there's another sense of sorrow you can experience that we talked about last week that's really just more of a regret or remorse without any kind of repentance. And that's a worldly repentance. And it, what it does is it causes people to be sorry and try desperately to do works um, and depend on those works without any kind of internal change um, as a means of salvation. And the result is death if you depend on those instead of Christ and the, the change that results from the Holy Spirit inside of you, the internal change. So... The sorrow that comes from God, the one that He uh, enacts in us, results or works out into repentance towards salvation, right? So there's, there's a lot that could be said about that verse. It's super interesting. Um, but yeah, repentance, repentance is something that's motivated by God and works out into, uh, yeah, into your externally visible works. So sometimes the call to repent is broad. Um, it doesn't really have an object. Uh, it's just a call to repent. 
and um, demands complete conversion of the mind, which leads to conversion of the actions. Other times, believers or unbelievers are commanded to repent, uh, change the mind concerning a specific sin, which would result in obedience, or concerning God, which would result in faith. But either way, it's a change of mind um, that we're commanded to do. So that's, that's kind of the conclusion on uh, metanoeo, repentance, and those, those words in the Old Test- in New Testament. Um, second word, we'll move pretty quick through these. Um, strepho, it's turning, um, and it's just like our Old Testament word of shuv. It can be physical, like just turning. In fact, it's the word that Jesus uses when he says, turn the other cheek. So just like very physical turning, right? Uh, Matthew 9, 22, but Jesus turning around, so just a physical turning, uh, and seeing her, the woman who had touched his garment, said, have courage, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that hour. So just, just an example of like, this is just a physical word, like physical turning. Um, but then it's applied in moral context, and it refers to the turning of the inner self or the heart. Um, this uh, verse is a quote from Isaiah, and uh, in the Hebrew, it was actually our first word, shuv. And when they quote it in the Greek, they use this word, strepho. It says, um, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Um, so I think we looked at that passage a couple weeks ago in the Old Testament, but you know when they quote it in the New, they use this word. And then Acts 7.39, um, To whom our fathers were not willing uh, to become obedient, but rejected him and turned back in their hearts to Egypt. So you see the nation of Israel, um, they're recounting um, the history of Israel, and when they do, they talk about how the nation of Israel turned their hearts back towards Egypt when they were continually complaining in the wilderness. They turned back their hearts. So, turning of the heart. Um, and then, hopefully y'all can read that. I should have made that bigger. You, uh, you add a, a prefix to that word, strepho. Um, this, this epi uh, prefix uh, basically means to or towards or with. Um, and so a lot of times when this word's used, it's talking about a turn towards something. And then this, this word down here, apostrepho, is away from. And so it's, it's a turning away from a certain thing, right? So um, Acts 14, 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from, apo, these vain things to, epi, a living God. So turn from, turn towards, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Very similar thing, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from, apo, idols to serve the living and true God. So, and that's, that sounds a lot like Old Testament language, right? Turning from idols to God. So that's super cool. Uh, but it's, it's just a continuation of that same idea of turning from something, namely sin, and turning to God. Both those examples, both those verses are turning to God. Um, and then apostrepho, uh, Acts 3.26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to the Jews first, 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So um, that, that verb there, turning, um, is the apostrepho, turning from something, turning from wickedness, right? Uh, it can also be used to describe a turn away from God. I think this might be the only time it's used this way in the New Testament, but Hebrews 12, 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, um, for if they did not escape, talking about the Israelites, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So that word, um, much less will we escape if we reject him. Um, that rejection is turning away. It's the apostrepho is the word there. So turning away from God. Much less will we escape judgment if we turn away from him who warns from heaven, if we turn away from Christ. Um, so those, those are just more the vocabulary of repentance. This is the only passage I was able to find that has most all these words in the same context, same passage. Um, so this is Paul, and he's speaking to Agrippa. He's testifying, and he uh, is recounting his own call to ministry and the, thing, the, the events that occurred on the road to Damascus where he himself was converted and commissioned to go um, and proclaim the gospel. He's recounting this to Agrippa, and he says, I, Paul, um, said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up, up uh, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to open their eyes so that they may turn from, apo, darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So you got all those words grouped together in that one little passage, um, how Paul, his mission, his ministry, is focused on proclaiming to the Gentiles that they should repent, so change their mind about about God and about sin and turn to Him and all, all their behavior be changed because of that, should repent or, and turn to God. So it's a turning to God, as we've seen, and performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, right? So he's saying as they're changing their mind, they're doing these deeds continually that are demonstrating that. They're keeping in with their repentance, right? And so on, on the first um, first level of just looking at this passage for its face value, like if we haven't obeyed the initial command to repent, then, then, then what Paul was calling the Gentiles to do is the very thing that we ought to do, and that ought to be repent and turn to God. If you take a step back, though, and we have repented and we have turned towards God, then we ought to be the kind of people that are keep performing deeds in keeping with our repentance, Right? We ought to be the people who didn't just repent. That's never the biblical picture. We're people who are continually repenting and we're, we're, we're performing continually deeds that are 
um, keeping in with our repentance, right? That's, that's the biblical picture of repentance. This is ongoing thing in the lives of believers. And then finally, if you're taking another step back, this was central to Paul's ministry, right? He proclaimed and he called people to repent and to turn from darkness to light. This is what Paul went about doing. Um, I called, I got to, Abby and I got to call Jonathan and Audrey um, this weekend and we talked to them and Jonathan's in a evangelism class right now and he was telling me some of his frustration with it and honestly I think my evangelism class that I took in New Orleans was probably one of my least favorite classes I took um, just because of various things um, but if I mean if we if you if you I can assure you that if you follow Paul's model of proclaiming repentance to the Gentiles that's a that's you're going to get a lot farther just applying Paul's method of evangelism from this passage than you will from taking a three-hour course in New Orleans but um, his his message and his to the Gentiles was a message of repentance and so I mean that ought to be our message too to the people around us is a is a call to repentance and a call to turn to God um, and a call to turn from darkness to light. Um, one final thing, if we go back to where we started tonight with the, um, oh, it might have got rid of it, but yeah, it did. Um, where we talk about the different expressions of repentance. Um, Paul almost never, he very, very seldom uses in his epistles the language of metanoeo or metanoia or strepho, those words we were looking at tonight. But he still talks about this whole idea of, of turning to God, right? He just uses different language. He talks about walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. And he talks about going from death to life. Similar thing with John. John in his gospel hardly ever uses, he never uses um, language of repentance. But he still talks about conversion towards God. He just talks about it from going from blindness to sight or from um, death to life or from darkness to light. Um, and that's what we saw in that last passage was um, turning from darkness to light. And so, you know, as you're studying these things, as you're walking through the New Testament, um, this idea of repentance is throughout the whole New Testament of turning towards God, turning away from sin, that's central to the whole New Testament in a lot of ways, but it's very foundational for us as believers as we're continually turning from iniquity, turning to God, turning from the flesh, turning to life in the Spirit. Um, so all those things are just different vocabularies of describing the same process of conversion. Um, so just keep that in mind too.